0: Reading interviews with certain actors over the years, I've been struck by uh, a common theme. Uh, the preferences that they will express from, some, from time to time as to the types of roles that they often like to play. Uh, often, e- even the, the very best will, will say, you know, when it comes right down to it, I much prefer playing the villain, the bad guy, as opposed to the hero. And oftentimes, I'm just sort of paraphrasing that the reasoning goes something like, like this. It's, it's just, I, I hate to put it this way, but it's just that, you know, being good is so boring. Being bad, ooh, that's interesting. That's, that's Interesting. I suppose that's all, uh, that sort of makes sense, you know, in the, the world of, of the actor and the, the actress and the stage and the films and, and, and all of that. I mean, it's, it's probably something along the lines, of, in many cases, that that, that individual is probably, it's just an opportunity for them to, you know, taste something of the forbidden dessert with actually, actually after you know, eating it and just sort of sampling it without actually living that way. But I, I wonder if it, if it points to a deeper issue, a deeper issue with, with us. Um, a deeper problem that with just moral integrity, in and of itself, um, I, I, mo- most people would probably say, you know, I, I don't have a problem with doing good. I, I don't have a problem with with doing the right thing. Well, I mean, so long as it you don't know, go overboard, so long as it's not impractical, so long as it's not inconvenient. Let's not take this morality this goodness, integrity, let's not take that too far. Let's not go overboard. But what if it proves, what if it, it's proven, what if it's, it's, it's shown that this thing that we seem to feel oftentimes is inconvenient and impractical is actually something essential? What if it, it's borne out that integrity, moral beauty, goodness, righteousness... Uh, is, is something that we were hardwired for, that we are, were cre- as created for, that we are as in need of as much as oxygen. I mean, would you, would you say to the deep sea diver or the astronaut as they're packing their gear, don't go overboard on that air thing? No. My point is that I think we have a very low view of the good, of the morally beautiful, of integrity, of righteousness. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, this is the first of the books of the New Testament, the first of the uh, canonical Gospels, Uh, Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John, we are in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, in the midst, or the beginning, I should say, of what is oftentimes referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We are doing a little uh, intensive series there within the the Sermon on the Mount on just the Beatitudes, taking them one at a time, and uh, we are getting back into that this week. We are in Matthew chapter 5, looking particular at verse 6. That's where we're honing in on for the coming minutes. Uh, I do, however, want to start and at back at the top, at the beginning of Matthew 5, just to get a sense of the flow, the context, and read all the way down to verse 12. So, starting, though, at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, hear now the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me? Lord, as the prophets said, the grass withers and the flowers fade. But the Word of the Lord stands forever. And we are opening, we have opened, we are reading, we are studying here for these next few minutes. The Word of God, the Scriptures, all of which Paul tells us are breathed out, inspired by the Holy Spirit, useful, helpful for teaching and rebuking and for correcting, training, in righteousness, so that we might be thoroughly equipped, thoroughly prepared, thoroughly ready. We ask now that You would give us ears. We ask that You would give us an understanding, a heart's understanding here of, of Your good, truly good, deeply good Word. And it is in Your Son's name we pray, Amen. Cause and effect is something well worth understanding, Uh, the the way it works and its it's reality uh, in our world. It's it's worth understanding, you know, in in the physics lab, cause and effect. It's worth noting if you're a police officer uh, coming up on an an accident scene, cause and effect. It's worth knowing just for all of us as you're looking at your, your family history, the family tree, and trying to understand Why am I the way I am? And maybe your spouse is asking the same question. Uh, Cause and effect. Uh, The way one thing leads to and has an impact, has an effect on another. And we see something of that here in the Beatitudes. We've been talking about that over the last several weeks. These are not just isolated. These sayings upon sayings are sort of thrown out there randomly. That's not it at all. Uh, There's there's an orderliness to them. At every, at every point. John Stott, there in your, your quotes and notes, the first quote, I want to read that to you. He's making the point very, very well, setting the stage for what we're looking at here this morning. Looking back, we can see that the first four Beatitudes reveal a spiritual progression of relentless logic. Each step leads to the next and presupposes the one that has gone before. To begin with, we are to be poor in spirit, acknowledging our complete and utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. Next, we are to mourn over the cause of it, our sins. Yes, and our sin too, the corruption of our fallen nature and the reign of sin and death in the world. Thirdly, we are to be meek, humble, and gentle towards others, allowing our spiritual poverty admitted and bewailed to condition our behavior to them as well as to God. And fourthly, we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. For what is the use of confessing and lamenting our sin of acknowledging the truth about ourselves to both God and men if we leave it there. Confession of sin must lead to hunger for righteousness. What Stott's getting at, he's absolutely correct, what he's getting at there is this cause and effect thing that is, is, uh, we see playing itself out of the, in the spiritual plane within the context of our hearts. Jesus says there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, The Beatitude we're looking at here this morning, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He's saying these individuals are blessed. As we've been looking at, been saying, noting at every point of the course of this little series here in the Beatitudes, when Jesus says these individuals are blessed, that is not a description of their mood, how they feel, or their temperament. It is rather an assessment of their character, their conduct, their life, their experience. Uh, He is saying, my friends, look at these individuals. This is the kind of person, if you're going to follow me, this is the kind of person that you need to be admiring, that you need to even envy, that you need to imitate, that you need to emulate. Look at this kind of person. If you're going to follow me, This is a picture, partially at least, of what that looks like. He's making clear the way our lives should be, the the shape that our lives should take. And in in this case in particular, he's saying that partly that includes a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. We need to heed that and pursue it. Which then begs a question. What would that look like? What would that entail? What does that mean? In order to to get at that, in order to to plumb the depths of that, as we've done over the last several weeks, looking at these beatitudes one at a time, I want to follow up with three more questions. A who, a why, and a how. Who? Who is Jesus speaking of here? Why? Why? Why are they described this way as being blessed? How? How can those things be true of us? So a who, a why, and a how. So first, who are they? Who is Jesus speaking of here? Well we have it. Verse five, excuse me, chapter five, verse six. Blessed are the those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He's talking about a, a this, this pang, this physical sensation that we all are familiar with to some degree or another of hunger and thirst, and that pointing to, that being a metaphor, that being symbolic of a deep, heartfelt, spiritual longing. I think in terms of who Jesus is speaking to here. Early, well, not too early, but you know, around the 30 AD, first century context, uh, there in... um, Palestine, up off the right just in the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. Hunger. What did that mean to those people? How, how would you, you, speaking of that, strike them? That was a real and present danger in those times. It's why all through the Old Testament, the fertility gods and the, the, the religions and the rites pertaining to those things, for a harvest therein so you didn't starve, Could be so enticing. And in that context, where hunger is a very real possibility, you didn't have a levels grocery. You don't have a a Walmart to go down. You don't have a whatever to, to have your food delivered to your front doorstep. Hunger is a possibility. It can come. All it takes is one bad crop, one bad season, one blight. In that context, Jesus says it's interesting that what He says in John chapter 6 to to such individuals, John 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. Which then takes us to thirst. Thirst. Thirst was something that was very real. Something that, that they, of course, would have understood as well. In an arid land, such as Israel still is today, was then still is today, Nothing's changed as far as that is concerned. An arid land, a dry part of the world where rain is, is not really all that frequent. If, if you're going to build a city, some of you know I was over there a few months ago and it was one of the things that kept coming up again and again and again. If you're at a tell, meaning a, the ruins of, of a site, of, of a, whether it was a village or a city, or whatever the case may be, you knew one way or the other you had to find a source of water there. The archaeologists are going to find it there now, whether it was a, a, a river or a stream of some kind, or whether it was going to be a well that had been dug, or a cistern like we read from Jeremiah, where it's a, a container dug in the ground and, and with plaster so it doesn't leach out into the, into the into the earth. You've got to have a water source in that part of the world. It's just just and in that context, Jesus says to the woman at the well there in Samaria, John four verse. Thirteen, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is then speaking, you see here, of a deep spiritual longing, a hunger, and a thirst for what? Righteousness. Now, if you have read any of Paul's writings, the Apostle Paul, not McCartney, uh, the Apostle Paul's writings, that's going to ring a bell for you. But I would say a false bell. Let me explain why here in a minute. For Paul, when you hear that word righteousness, what's immediately going to come to your mind, if you've read anything of the book of Romans or Galatians, uh, either one of those books in particular, what you're going to think of is what Martin Luther described as an alien righteousness. That is to say, a righteousness that is yours, that has come from outside of you. The imputed righteousness of Christ to the believer that has now secured your legal standing in the courtroom of God. Now that is real. And Paul writes of that. He is an apostle of Jesus. He writes with the authority and backing of Jesus. So that is real, and it is right, and we need to delve into it, but not now, because that's not what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 5. Jesus is not speaking here in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, of an alien righteousness, of a right, of something that's been done for us. He is actually speaking of a righteousness that we are doing. He is speaking here of moral righteousness, of our conduct and our character that conforms to God's commands. He is speaking here of a social righteousness. So we're not just looking at our own lives and our own own deal personally, but we're looking out there into the world around us as well. And he's speaking here to liberation for the oppressed and justice for the downtrodden and integrity in our workplaces and honor one to another in our homes. That's the kind of righteousness that Jesus is speaking of here. He's saying, and Stott is alluding to that in that quote I read from a moment ago, it's not, Jesus is not just talking about mourning for sin and a failure to live up to these standards. He is speaking to therein a longing then to live out and follow Christ in a consistent sort of way and recognizing our deep sh- God, shortfall, that hardly seems to, to cover it, a crippledness, a spiritual bentness within us, an inability to walk in those ways, and being pained. Like every one of these beatitudes, we've seen it with the the three so far, we've seen it it certainly with this one and, and the ones that will follow as well, Jesus is the perfect example of what it looks like to hunger and thirst for righteousness, more than anything, finding life, in, in and of itself in, in that. Matthew chapter 4. We looked at this some weeks ago in the context of his, the temptation that he experienced there in the wilderness. Matthew 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying that our foremost, deepest, most abiding need is for God. And every other need, ultimately, is a symptom of that. Ultimately. And the brokenness of this world. And the restoration all things being made new and right. So Jesus is speaking here of people who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Of, of, of walking with God in this vibrant way. And he is saying, if you're going to follow me, there needs to be a desperation about you. There needs to be such a strong earnestness and passion about you for this kind of Righteousness of walking in the ways of God that is no different than the desperation and, can I say, passion you would feel for food and water in a desolate wilderness. That's the depth of the longing. That's the desperation that you're feeling. And certainly we see that again and again through the scriptures. This is a powerful image that comes up again and again. For instance, Psalm 42. Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer, Pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. That's the kind of longing for this vital relationship with the Lord that Jesus is speaking of here that needs to be true of us as his followers. And it's why the invitation of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 55, if you want to turn there with me, it's a few big books to the right there of the Psalms. Uh, Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2, this fantastic Beautiful, wondrous invitation that's then held out to us here by the prophet. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And you labor your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. and Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. That's what Jesus is holding out to us. He is saying, he's making it very clear, the way our lives should look, the shape our lives should take. You need to hear this and pursue it. Leads us to the next question. So that's who they are. That's who Jesus is speaking of. Why are they blessed? Why are they described this way? Again, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they shall be satisfied. Satisfied. That is to say... Their deepest hunger, filled, met. Deepest yearnings, deepest thirst, quenched, satisfied. Oh, what a word. Oh, what a word. What kind of satisfaction is he speaking of here? Well, certainly at the individual, the moral level, those who hunger, and thirst for righteousness and walking in God's ways will increasingly find their relationship with God unclouded by sin. Him progressively doing this transformative work in, in the, at the level of the heart such that we are increasingly freed from fretting, which then leads to faithlessness, and distrust, which leads to disobedience because of this heart-level work that He's doing in our lives. But not just that, but from the larger sphere as well. And I, I've talked about what does this righteousness look like, the moral and social sphere. So that satisfaction comes at both levels as well in seeing it not just individually, but actually having eyes to see it happening around us in this world, even now, even to some poor degree. Disease met with healing. Emptiness met with fullness. Broken relationships with reconciliation. Poverty with abundance. Injustice with justice. Racism with peace. All these things. Shalom. The beautiful old Hebrew word. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. No, the kingdom has not come yet in full. But it has yet come at least partially so. And so the one who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness is given that opportunity, that blessing, then of experiencing something of that personally. In the, This gets to the 2nd subpoint: the, the promise of satisfaction, the coming of this satisfaction, yes, it comes in the present. It comes individually in our own experience. We, we, the technical, the, the theological term for that is sanctification. Some of you may be familiar with that. There's even a quote. I'm not going to read it right now, but there's a quote there in your quotes and notes the, from Westminster Shorter Catechism, defining what that looks like. It basically means the, the heart and soul of the man and woman in Christ being progressively, slowly but surely changed from the inside out. Made to be more like Jesus. Sanctified. Even now, it's, it's, or, or you could put it this way, as, as Paul does in, in Galatians 5, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Or as we have here in Matthew 5, living out the beatitudinal life in the present. We taste something of that now, but not I'll put it this way. Thank God that's not all there is. There's more yet to the promises, more yet of this satisfaction that the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness shall be uh, satisfied with, not just in the present, but in the future. There's more yet coming. Yes, it's it's uh partially and substantially seeing, experiencing something of this, this transformation in the kingdom coming, but it is going to one day come truly and fully and finally where everything that our appetites have been wedded for will be set before us. And no more, no more will our hearts be grieved by the unrighteousness within us and that which we see all around us. No more because it will be changed here, everywhere. No more homesickness of the soul. That's coming. One day those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be fully satisfied. That's part of this promise here as well. Now that is is good news. And that is meant to encourage us. That is meant to embolden us. That is meant to stir us up and move us out. The problem is this. In the 21st century West, using images like hunger and thirst can fall flat. Because I dare say few, if any of us in this room, have ever been truly hungry or thirsty. Truly. Like in the ancient world. Again, we get hungry, a little pang of hunger. Oh, I'm starving! You know, one little rumbly in the tumbly. And we think, well, that's it. I'm done. It's like famine. All we have to do is get in the car and go down to Walmart or to a restaurant, fast food, or, or something nicer, whatever. Or if, if that's too much for you, you can call and have it delivered. We don't know what hunger is. Nor do we know what thirst is. I'm so thirsty. I'm going to die, Mom! And all you have to do is get off your posterior and walk across the room, maybe across the house. I don't mean to stress you out. And, and turn on the tap. Hunger and thirst, those are difficult images for us to, to grapple really with and, and the depths of, of what's going on and what's being spoken of there. So let me try, let me come at it this way. I want you to try and imagine the most satisfying experience you've ever had in your life. The moment when it just seemed like all the planets were in perfect orbit, The birds are singing. The flowers are blooming. The music is just so. The Vols didn't win in the last 15 seconds. Lose, excuse me. Lose. I just put salt in your wounds. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Um, You know, know, it's it's that, that deepest hunger, that deepest yearning of your heart. Has been met. That deepest thirst, that thing that you've been waiting for and pining for has, has come and come in ways maybe even beyond your expectation or envisioning or imagining. Now I want you to take that and I want you to understand that that, as good and wonderful as it is, is but a glimmer of a reflection of a shadow of a flicker of what is coming. For the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who has the assurance that they will be satisfied in the future, fully and even partially now. In Christ, all your longings, all our longings, are met. In Christ, everything you really want, really want, everything that you're chasing after and giving yourself over to, in Christ, that is all met. All of it. All of it. And Jesus is saying, this is the way. This is the shape your life should take. Oh, would you heed this? Oh, would you pursue this? Okay, so that's the, that's the who. Who is he talking about? It's the why. Why are they described that way? It's blessed. One last thing. How? How could, it, how could our lives be described in that way? How, how could our lives become something like that? How could these things be true of us. Well, I've got three things for you. I've got questions to ask, things to do, but more importantly, things to know. So hang with me. I want to get to the things to know. That's probably, that's not probably, certainly the most important, but I do want to start with the questions, the questions, the questions that have to do with why we do the good things we do. I just want to assume for a minute, I'm going to think the best of you. You look nice. Your breath is fresh. You look like you're cleaned up pretty well this morning. I'm going to ask some questions. I'm going to assume of you for a minute it's my charitable judgment this morning. As the, the Puritans used to say, my charitable judgment. I wouldn't give it of myself, but I'll give it of you. That you are actually striving to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? The old golden rule. Right? Why? Why do you do that? What's driving? What's the motive? Is it To make yourself look good I'm not going to answer it for you, but you you need to. Is it to make yourself is it more about reputation than righteousness? Perception of others the reverb, the consequences, good and bad of that. You see, if it is to make yourself look good in front of others, who is that really for? You. You. It's selfish. Why do you do the good that you do? Is it because others have told you to be good? And you want to keep them off your back. And so you do good. Or maybe it's your own conscience, and you don't want to be assailed by a guilty conscience, and so you, you do the good. You know what? Why is that? Who is that about, really? It's about you. It's for you. And again, it's selfish. I'm going to push a little harder. Why do you do the things that you do? The good things. Just the good things that that you do. Is it because of the feeling that you get? The vibe that you get? I'll even call it the warm fuzzy that you get in contributing to something in making a difference sounds noble in helping others if that's still why you're doing the things that you're doing even the good things my friends that is still about you and it is still ultimately selfish there's only one good motive there's only one motive that actually makes a good thing good in God's sight. And that is love. Love of God and love of others. That is the only motive that makes the good thing truly good. So that then begs the question... What, oh my goodness, if those are the questions that we're asking, what is he going to do next? Well, uh, in terms of the next thing here in the subpoints. Well, the practical steps. I, I want you to think with me, what are the things we, that can be done that might then take our self-loving, self-obsessed selves and change that to a God-loving, other-loving selves, in, in the good things that we do? And I, I just have four quick things to throw at you. One, and these are, by the way, these are God-given, time-tested, proven means that He has given to do heart surgery in the depths of our being to change us from the inside out. I'm not making these up. I didn't come up with these on my own. One, corporate worship. Hello. Regularly gathering with God's people, to lift up and sing God's praises. That is one of His ordained means to do this heart's work in us. Another, Christian fellowship, regularly gathering with other believers to share life, to do life together, such as we have in our community groups here at CPC. That is one of His ordained means of this sort of heart surgery to get us out of ourselves. And that selfishness that runs so rampant deeply through us. Another regular, I would say, daily reading in the Scriptures, the Bible, that that we could be shaped, our minds, our hearts, could be shaped by Him. See, this is not rocket science, people. These are ordained means, common They might even say ordinary. You're you're waiting for some kind of like, whoa, I've never heard of that one. I don't have one like that to give you. Prayer. Continual, constant prayer through the day. Where we are giving over, lifting up our praises, our thanks, and our burdens to Him. These are all his ordained means. And there are others that we could list. His ordained means by which he does this heart's work. And again, this, this is not magic. It's not that you do it and boom, within, you know, walk out the door and it's like something magical or mechanical has happened to you after being here this morning. That's not the way it works. But these are his ordained means, his ordained means of his grace working in our lives. And he works through them. We don't do a thing, actually, in that. We simply put ourselves in a position where he does it all. Uh, Think with me as an analogy. Bartimaeus. Turn with me to to Mark chapter 10. as a great illustration of this point. Uh, Bartimaeus, the blind beggar. Oh, so can you imagine? Longing. Longing. I mean, blindness is no fun in any... Culture in any period of time, but in the ancient world, I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine. And Bartimaeus, as a blind beggar, is, is pleading. He comes before Jesus pleading that Jesus would give him his sight. Listen to what we look at what we see here. Mark 10, verse, speaking up in verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, And a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man and saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Didn't make himself see. And he knew he couldn't. But he could go to the one that he knew could. And that's the point. Maybe it would do us well to throw down our cloak and spring up and go to Jesus. Pleading with him to restore our sight. Okay, so there's questions to ask and there's steps to take, things to do but lastly, there are things to know, and my friends, if I didn't, I, I would really be—I guess it would be—you could say—pastoral malpractice if I stopped with questions to ask and especially things to do. There are things you must know, desperately know, and desperately cling to. You know, I mentioned earlier. That alien righteousness, justification, righteousness, that sense in which Paul speaks of in his writings, Romans and Galatians and other places as well. It speaks of justification, that is to say the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us such that our legal standing is established and secured in the courtroom of heaven and nothing on heaven or on earth can move it or shake it or change it. Oh, we need to hold it. We need to hold to that and let that hold us. Because when it comes to our personal, daily striving to grow in righteousness, in that sense of following God's commands and His ways and His character, we have, do, will miserably fall short have to know, not if that happens, when it happens, when it happens, that that doesn't change anything in terms of our security and standing with God. It changes nothing. Now think of the effect that that can have on you when you know you've blown it again. It helps you get up, doesn't it? And maybe even try a little harder. You know why? Because you know you're loved. And free. No matter what you do. No matter what you do. Now, just wrapping up, I realize that some of you may be thinking, okay, this is all fine. But what do I do if I just realize I'm sitting here this morning and... I am nowhere near this. I mean, I'm barely in the room. I am nowhere near what you're talking about. A hunger and a thirst for righteousness. For God's ways in my life. I want to help you. But it's going to sound puzzling what I'm going to say. You need to talk to yourself. You need to talk to yourself. I don't mean the way. Now I know we're all familiar with this this experience in Walmart, right? Um, it really threw me the first few times I, I went through this. Um, it still does to some degree. You know, you're walking down through the aisle and you see that person, and they're kind of looking at stuff and they're talking to themselves, and you're, you're a little thrown off because they're it doesn't they're not they're not all that unstable. They, they seem to be you know okay. They look relatively sane. And what you can hear of the conversation is coherent. I mean, your side of it, their side, the one side. But this doesn't make any sense because they're talking in the thin air. Ah, and then their head turns. And you see this little blue light in their ear. And it's that stupid Bluetooth thing. And you realize, oh, they're not actually talking to themselves. Well, here, I'm talking about talking to yourself. As in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Now, we looked at that a moment ago. uh, Psalm 42, in in reference to the the deer out in the the arid wilderness, panting deeply. Psalm 42, Psalm 43 go together, actually, as a package deal. And there's a, a threefold refrain. And you see it in 42, verse 5, 42, verse 11, and 43, verse 5. And it goes like this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Three times you see that in those two psalms that are meant to go together. Why? Why? My friends, sometimes the greatest sign of spiritual sanity can be talking to yourself. Interrogating yourself. Going down deep. Drilling down in there. Asking of yourself, Why? Why? why and actually you're not really talking only to yourself if you're doing it as a christian is meant to do it in prayer like in psalm 42 43 the lord's in this because really what you're doing is you're saying this lord why am i not hungering for for righteousness why is that i, have, I seem to have no appetite for that why is my heart rate so flat why am i so satisfied with what I see in myself and what I see in the world around me. What's going on here? And I tell you, this is what he'll do for you. In you. He will take you by the hand and take you on a journey and he will make you trace your steps. And you'll take, he'll take you back to those beatitudes but in reverse. Why am I not hungering and thirsting for righteousness? The reason is you're not meek. Why am I not meek? Because I'm not mourning my sin. Why am I not mourning my sin? Because I don't know my spiritual poverty. That's not a pleasant journey to go on, but it's the one we have to go on. And he loves us so much, he will take us on those walks, tracing our steps, taking our hard hearts and making them soft. Do you pray with me? I'm going to close, uh, close out this portion of the service with this prayer from Patrick of Ireland. Permit us not, O Lord, to hear Your Word in vain. Convince us of its truth. Cause us to feel its power. And bind us to Yourself with cords of faith and hope and love that never shall be broken. We bind ourselves today. You are God. Your power to hold us. Your hand to guide us, Your eye to watch us, Your ear to hear us, Your wisdom to teach us, Your Word to give us speech, Your presence to defend us this day and every day. In the name of the blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to whom be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.